0: podcast you're about to hear is true the names have not been changed to protect the innocent the guilty or anyone else if you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media stop listening now if you're interested in thinking differently or learning something turn up the volume on your computer smartphone or mobile device this is the racket report Here's Frank Morano.
1: Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report. This is Frank Murano This is the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of what happens in organized crime, particularly with La Cosa Nostra, but not exclusively. We've spoken with people that have been mobsters. We've spoken with people that have been mob lawyers. We've spoken with people that have been journalists. Well, now we have someone who is an all-star in uh, the annals of mafiadom, at least when it comes to the pro-government side. He was probably the best-known mafia prosecutor of the last 30 years, and then was appointed to the federal bench at an incredibly young age, and now he's chronicled a lot of those experiences. The experience of prosecuting some of the boldest-faced names in the underworld and making that transition ultimately to being a a federal judge in The Gotti Wars, Taking Down America's Most Notorious Mobster. This book is absolutely terrific. A lot of folks are saying this is the best nonfiction book of the year. I think Esquire magazine said that very thing. And a lot of folks are saying this is one of the best legal dramas uh, ever written of all time. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome retired federal judge and uh, the author of The Gotti Wars, Taking Down America's Most Notorious Mobster, Judge John Gleason. Judge, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your kind words about my book. I'm really grateful.
1: Well, congratulations on the book. Everybody's talking about it. And uh, we'll get into some of the many areas that you cover in this book. Just so people know a little bit about your background, what made you want to become a lawyer in the first place? And did you always want to be a prosecutor or were you sort of open to doing a a number of other things in the legal profession?
2: No, I'm, I'm not one of these people who knew he was going to be a lawyer when he was seven years old. I, I, I got an English degree from college, which equipped me to do almost nothing. <laughs> so I became a house painter after college and got tired of snipping oil-based paint. I was a resident of Virginia, so I got into the University of Virginia Law School, which cost 900 bucks a year at the time. So I thought, what the hell? Let me give it a shot. And turned out I loved it. And uh, I loved every moment of being a law student. It's not like I wanted to be a a prosecutor, Frank. You know, I, like a lot of people my age, I grew up on The Godfather. And when I got interested in criminal law, I really wanted to be Tom Hagen. You know, I wanted to be the consiglier. Um But, you know, those jobs are hard to come by. So I went into prosecution because that's the best way to get up on your feet in court in a criminal case.
1: What made you you've been re- retired from the bench a couple of years now. What made you decide to write this book now? It's been 30 years since John Gotti senior was uh, was convicted and one of the probably one of the most talked about and most watched cases uh, on the entire planet. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Why come out with this now? Was it specifically timed for the 30th anniversary?
2: No, it wasn't. And I, you know, I started writing this book more than 25 years ago. I got two daughters who were then, you know, five and one. And uh, I thought before I get too old or too dead to tell them about those experiences, because they're interesting experiences. I wanted them to know. I thought I'd write them down. And it just took me longer, you know, um, to do it than I thought. It took me more than 25 years to finish it. And, you know, I left the bench in 2016. Now I'm practicing law. I'm busier than I've ever been. So it was really just a matter of getting over the finish line, something that I started a long time ago. These, this was fascinating stuff that I knew needed to be written down. I knew that a long time ago just took me longer than most. A lot of your book deals with
1: the Gotti trials that you were involved in as a prosecutor, and I want to focus mainly on that. But you were also the lead counsel in the successful racketeering trial of Vic Arena. Now, Vicarina, especially these days, is not exactly a household name, as John Gotti remains two decades after his death. But uh, in his day, he was one of the top dogs when it came to La Cosa Nostra. He was the acting boss of the Columbus crime family. I'm wondering if you can give folks a little bit of uh, a little bit of background on Vicarina and the factionalism that led to the Colombo crime family war. What made him want to go after Carmine Persico, who was the official boss of the Colombo crime family?
2: Great question. You know, Carmine got convicted back in what they called the commission case and got essentially like He had a hundred year sentence. And didn't want to give up the reins of the Colombo family, which produced this schism, this faction of people who stayed loyal to Carmine the Snake Persico on the one hand, and Vicarina and the people loyal to him on the other. And they ended up in a war. That was right when I was chief of organized crime in Brooklyn. And they ended up killing off each other. And then we were arresting them when, with the guns and convicting them of the murders. And it was just a power struggle. You know, it's, there's a lot of money in being high up, being in the administration of a La And Nostra. And uh, so there was a lot at stake. And uh, it's, a, it's really a great question. You know, I tried Vic Arena, who was the boss of the Colombo family at the time, just six months after we convicted John Gotti. And they were, talk about studies in contrast. Vic was a gentleman. We would shake hands each morning when he came into the courtroom. We'd try the case hard against one another, him and his lawyer, shake hands at night. Um, he'd go back to the, to the prison where he was being detained, whereas John Gotti was uh, like a caged animal all the time. So I, I look back on those days, and, you know, Vic really showed the difference between a, a mob boss and a celebrity boss, which is what John Gotti decided he was going to be.
1: How did the Colombo War ultimately end up?
2: Well, they ended up, most of the family got decimated, and it ended up later on with a, a panel running the family, no designated boss. Carmine, once Gravano flipped, and I know we'll talk about that, once Sammy Gravano flipped, the mob changed dramatically So Carmine Sessa, who was the consulier of the family, came in and cooperated, uh, came in on Sammy's coattails to cooperate. That family in particular went into disarray quicker than most, uh, in part because a member of its administration, the consulier, Carmine Sessa, decided to become a government witness.
1: I think you, you really can't have a look at the Colombo crime family in that era and the Colombo crime family wars without looking at uh, the role of Greg Scarpa, the guy that people <laughs> call the uh, the Grim Reaper. Now, we then l- we learned later, after Greg Scarpa was uh, committing all sorts of horrible crimes, that he was working with the federal government as uh, one of these top echelon informants. And then uh, we've learned in ensuing years that there was a number of other high-profile criminals that were working as top echelon informants, uh, people like Frankie Blue-Eyes Sparacco, people like Whitey Bulger. There's been some criticism of the top echelon informant program and a feeling that maybe the government gave some of these horrible criminals uh, a license to go on committing crimes so long as they were giving valuable information. What is your take on Scarpa specifically and the top echelon informant program in general?
2: Yeah, good for you. These are great questions. You're more of a, you're more of an aficionado than most. Yeah, wait, Thank you. So, per, first of all, a very important distinction for your audience, a cooperating witness who gets, who works with prosecutors, gets on the witness stand on the one hand, and then Scarpa and Whitey Bulger and the like, who are confidential informants who don't get on the witness stand. And in fact, for the most part prosecutors never even know about them because the FBI looks at today's prosecutors like they're tomorrow's defense lawyers and they don't need to know and the problem with Scarpa who by the way was one of the lead captains on the Persico side of that war the problem with that that Scarpa placed into clear relief and Whitey Bulger placed into clear relief is you know the when the handling agents get really close To a valuable informant, and the worse criminal they are, the more valuable they are. It becomes like an umbrella, like an insurance policy for the for the informant. Right? They can uh, the the handling agent and the bureau might kind of look the other way when they're doing some criminal work on the side, including in Scarpa's case, murders. Right? This happened in the first Gotti case where we indicted. Willie Boyd Johnson, who was a top echelon informant, and the FBI came to us and said, don't indict him. And we said, we're going to indict him because your informant is a murderer. So it's very difficult. And the FBI since those times, since Bolger, has tried very hard with reformulating the internal policies to try to eliminate that risk but it's very difficult. The the you know, the uh, NIG report uh, demonstrated that for the most part, agents who like to promise confidentiality don't really follow those new policies. It's a very, very difficult problem we need in law enforcement. You need informants. On the other hand, you've got to make sure that the handling agent doesn't get too close and become blind to an informant who's playing both sides of the street.
1: Uh, last question about the Columbos, and then I want to focus mainly on the primary subject of your book, which is the the prosecution of John Gotti. The handler, the FBI handler of uh, Greg Scarpa was Lindley DeVecchio. He was tried for uh, essentially helping Greg Scarpa carry out murders. Ultimately, uh, they did not continue with that prosecution. He remains unconvicted. There seems to be a divided opinion about DiVecchio, both in in uh, legal circumstances, circles, in in law enforcement circles, and among the general public. What's your take on Lindley DeVecchio? Did he cross the line in terms of criminality in aiding Greg Scarpa, or do you buy Lindley DeVecchio's version of events that he never crossed that line?
2: Well, look, it's a little more nuanced than that, Frank. Do I believe that Lindley DeVecchio um, crossed the line in the sense of aiding and abetting murders as he was, as that withdrawn prosecution charged him? No. Do I believe he got way too close to Scarpa and that the agents in his squad, Chris Favo, Jeff Tomlinson, two others, Ray Andish, Howard Ledbetter, do do I believe that that those Special agents under Lynn's supervision Properly reported to their super, to Lynn's supervisors That Lynn got too close to Greg Scarpa? Absolutely um, So, you know, it's, if the line's criminality, non-criminality I don't have any reason to believe that Lynn engaged in criminal acts Did he lose his balance in, in handling Greg Scarpa? Yes, I believe that <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, Let's talk about John Gotti. It's tough to believe now, but there's been a whole generation of people born after John Gotti has passed away. There's been a a generation and a half of people that have been born uh, since uh, John Gotti was out on the street. Just to give folks some perspective on John Gotti. We know he was the boss of the Gambino crime family, but stylistically or criminally, you already described some of the differences between someone like him and Vicarina. But what made him different from previous high-profile mob bosses or well-known mob bosses, names like Carlo Gambino, Paul Castellano, even a guy that they call the original Dapper Don, Joe Colombo? What made Gotti different from those other bold-faced names?
2: The reason the mob as we knew it is gone is because John Gotti decided he was going to be a celebrity boss. He was... He said to me in the well of the court in the first of our two trials, he says, I have an image I need to uphold. And where all the other bosses at the time and before him internalized the fact that they were criminals, right? They call it organized crime for a reason. You want to stay off the government's radar screen. You don't want to put put a stick in the eye of the FBI. John Gotti decided he was going to be a celebrity. And by doing that, he brought the FBI down. I mean, they're human beings, too. Um, if you're going to be the dapper Don and you're going to walk around the street uh, promoting yourself as a crime boss, you're going, to, you're going to irritate the people whose job it is to fight organized crime. And that this is pre-9-11 the number one criminal problem in New York at the time was La Cosa Nostra. So what John Gotti did was mobilize the FBI, not just to bring him down, but against all of the families. So, you know, one way to look at it, Frank, is back then there were eight FBI squads in New York, all of them devoted exclusively to LCN. Today, there's one half of one squad devoted to LCN. So what John Gotti did was uh turn the heat up not just on himself and the Gambino family but all of the families. And between that and Gravano flipping Those are the two things that brought an end to the mob as we once knew it. I'm sure there are a
1: number of underworld folks back then and since then that take umbrage with John Gotti for that high profile lifestyle and bringing attention to what's supposed to be a secret society. But did the manner in which John Gotti ascended to the role of boss of the Gambino crime family, did that affect his standing negatively in underworld circles?
2: Sure, I mean, Chin Gigante, the head of the Genovese family, tried to kill him several times, right? Four months after they killed John Gotti, for your listeners' edification, blasted onto the scene as boss of the Gambino family by killing his boss in public on a Spark Steakhouse, December 16, 1985, without having gotten the permission of the commission to kill the boss. Chin never forgave him for that. Four months later, when they blew up Frankie DeChico, they thought John Gotti was going to be with him. And then in 1988, several Genovese family members were, were arrested and prosecuted and convicted for conspiring to kill John Gotti. So just the way he became boss alienated him from the other most important boss at the time, Chin in the Genovese family.
1: Let, let let's talk about that first Gotti trial, that first Gotti prosecution that you were a part of, even though that you weren't even though you weren't the lead counsel in that case. You were still a, a young man, relatively young man at the time. What was it like for you as a young attorney, a young prosecutor to be part of such a high profile prosecution that everybody, the whole world, the whole country was watching?
2: It was great. I was lucky. You know, I came from a big uh, stayed, you know, it was a great law firm, but it was kind of boring and walked into the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. And within six weeks, I was assigned to what became, once they killed Paul a few months later, what became, as you mentioned, the the, the biggest case in the country. And it was criminal stuff. It was fascinating. It ended up being a seven-month trial. The lead prosecutor was a truly gifted prosecutor named Diane Jackalone, and she uh, took me under her wing, taught me how to prosecute, how to try a case. We had 96 witnesses. I basically grew up as a trial lawyer in one case, Frank. You know, most lawyers need to do five, six, seven, eight trials before they're comfortable. But, you know, when you're on trial for seven months, you kind of cram all that into one case. It was a, uh, professionally for me, it was a disaster the way it ended, but it was the building block of the rest of my career in the law.
1: One of the episodes that you, that you deal with in the book, which I have to think was particularly trying was when a witness accused you of some relatively serious crimes. What, what happened exactly?
2: Yeah, we had a, it's a fellow named Matt Trainer, who in the run up to the trial was going to be our witness, but he made a demand and acted, he demanded that uh, he, I forget what the favor was, a visit in prison or some sneakers or something. And when we said no, he said, well, I'm going to tell the defense lawyers you asked us to lie. And we said, fine, you're off our witness list. We pulled him out of our witness lineup. A year and a half later, he shows up on the witness stand as a defense witness for John Gotti, testifies that I and my wife, who was a psychiatric nurse, that I and my wife gave him narcotic drugs in an effort to get him to testify falsely against John Gotti, which seemed kind of harsh, seemed kind of rough to listen to that testimony. but i got off kind of easy because then he turned his parrots on to Diane Jackalone, the lead prosecutor, and said she gave him sexual favors and drugs right for, uh, i'm the I'm the one who gave the drugs I see okay supposedly. got it, got it got Diane got it. gave the sexual favors, so we had it covered between the two of us <laughs> and and uh look, I crossed him for a couple of days, and it was brutal it was brutal on on Diane especially the defense lawyers were brutal on her and and the payback for us was supposed to be at the end of the case a conviction which would have made it all worthwhile but spoiler alert all of the defendants including were acquitted on all counts and it was a monumental loss for the government
1: there's always been a lot of claims that the jury at least to some extent was was fixed in that trial um you know i've spoken with john Gotti jr about that case he insists that he doesn't believe that it was fixed John's not an unbiased source what's your take was the jury in that case fixed
2: well yeah and i don't i mean i don't know how you can hide from that fact Junior can speak for himself, but here's the deal. Here's what your listeners should know. Four and three quarters years later, three months before the statute of limitations on obstruction of justice would run, Sammy Gravano flipped. I met him in the middle of the night, and I was debriefing him about all the murders he had committed. And in the middle of that debriefing, we took a little break, and he said to me, as casually, Frank, as you might say to somebody, I got a parking ticket last week. He says, you know, by the way, that trial you had where John was acquitted, I f- and I, that got my attention, obviously. That was two years of my life, that case. And we investigated it, made the case, indicted the juror, prosecuted the juror. I testified against the juror. Gravano did. The juror was convicted and did three years. So you might want to just uh, tell Junior to Google all that and Google the name George Pape. He was the anonymous juror who uh, took a bribe to throw that first trial.
1: So uh, the second Gotti trial that you were now the lead counsel in. Gotti had not only been acquitted in that first federal racketeering trial, he'd been acquitted in an assault case. I have to think, and he's developed this reputation now of the Teflon Don, none of these indictments stick to him, none of these convictions come to pass. I have to think that your mentality going into that 1992 was or, you know, obviously in the run-up prior to that, is that you're, you're thinking of him almost as this Rasputin-like figure that you can take no chances with, that you have to fire every bullet in your arsenal. Tell me about your mentality as the lead prosecutor in that case, going into that case, seeing those previous acquittals.
2: Yeah, again, a great question. You look at it, it was not just... The, the acquittal in our case that he had fixed, but there were two state assault cases that he beat. So he really had acquired this aura of invincibility. We firmly believed before we brought that case in which he, we convicted him, we firmly believed that law enforcement really had one more shot, that if we took another shot at him and and he beat the case, he was never going to get convicted. It was just going to cement him as invincible. So that influenced the way we approached the investigation. We decided we're not just going to rely on some low-level accomplice witnesses, like in the first case. We wanted his voice on tape. And this is where the FBI, you know, has, just has no equal. They were patient. They worked their informants. They learned that John was meeting with his underboss, Gravano, his consigliere, Frank Locascio, in an old lady's apartment above the Ravenite Social Club, 247 Mulberry Street. They got a bug in that place, and we had the best possible evidence. So, you know, we another thing we learned from the first case, not going to have seven, eight guys at the defense table. We could have indicted the entire family, but we indicted just Gravano, Gotti, Frank Lacasio. I wanted to get in and get out. No 7 months trials, no low-level accomplices, a quick in-out trial with John Gotti's voice convicting him. So that was all the, the result of him having acquired that reputation as the Teflon Don.
1: How did you feel, I'm sure you were aware of the reputation in some corners of the city that John Gotti had acquired at this point. You would go to Ozone Park and Howard Beach, and not all residents, but many of these residents would would cheer at the mention of John Gotti's name. There were people who would even show up to the courthouse holding signs, wearing t-shirts that say things like, Free John Gotti. There were bumper stickers in places like Staten Island, where I grew up, where you'd see the same... Method And even a lot of people that weren't necessarily Italian-American, a lot of them came to view Gotti as almost this Robin Hood-like figure who was fighting against the oppressive federal government. And he became a symbol in some respects of standing up to the federal government. How did it make you feel seeing someone that you have such a low regard for as a criminal and a person acquiring a reputation, at least in some quarters, as this larger-than-life Robin Hood-esque figure?
2: Yeah. It, again, another great question. It wasn't like, Frank, we were, you know, wringing our hands and gnashing our teeth. We just, look, what you've described is completely accurate. And it's just another manifestation of the fact that as a culture, we belong on a therapist's couch when it comes to organized crime generally and especially the mob, right? We see, look, the Godfather's part of it. You know, Bart didn't do a great job of imitating life, but we see in the mob what we want to see, right? We superimpose on the mob these, this kind of gauzy, you know, uh, affection. I think this goes back to Jesse James. You know, you mentioned Robin Hood, Bonnie and Clyde. We like outlaws. And what we would see, you know, between the two trials, at exactly the same time, everybody out there in those neighborhoods was saying John Gotti's cleaning up the streets of drugs. We were his brother, all the members of his crew, Gene Gotti, John Coniglio, Tony Roach-Rampino. We put them all away for, for the rest of their lives, essentially, for heroin trafficking. So even as that is unfolding in front of everybody's eyes, they see John Gotti as cleaning up the streets. You know, you can't, as a prosecutor, it's not like you lie awake at night worrying about people's misperceptions of what they really are. That's just baked into our culture. You know, it's, we see what we want to see. It's not the reality. They're a treacherous bunch. There's no honor among those thieves. Um, but that, but that, that didn't begin with John Gotti. It didn't end with John Gotti.
1: Let's talk about the prosecution itself. Obviously, the aspect of this prosecution that has gotten the most attention was the testimony of the underboss at the time, uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. There was a lot of other evidence in this case. Uh, You mentioned the incredible job that the FBI did with surveillance of the apartment above the Ravenite Social Club. You have Gotti uh, on tape describing crimes. You have uh, a great deal of other forensic evidence, black and white evidence, audio recordings, video recordings. How essential was Sammy to getting a conviction? And could you have gotten a conviction without Sammy?
2: Yes, and it was funny, Frank, because we had this tape case, right? In December of 1990, we indict Gotti Gravano Lucasio and I spend the next 11 months getting ready for a trial in which our evidence is John Gotti on tape talking about who he's killed, who he's going to kill, the labor racketeering, the obstruction of justice. It was... A shallow case, because it really wasn't any witnesses, Um, but it was a really good case, because I was going to tell the jury, listen, here he is committing the crimes we charged him with. And then, really, literally 10 weeks before trial, Gravano reaches out to me surreptitiously, and we meet and strike a deal. And all of a sudden, we have a case that's gone from a shallow, strong, recorded evidence case to the highest-ranking mafia turncoat in history, right? Gravano, who was on the scene for the Castellano hit. But what I told the jury at the end of the case, which I believe in, I believe in my bones is true, I said, look, you, can, you don't need Gravano. Gravano's real significance was he helped us take down the rest of the mob. I said, you don't need him. He was at the defense table until 10 weeks ago. We were going to convict all three based on the recordings. Then he flipped. So now you have the insider's view, the underboss's view. And what I said to him is basically you've got two bodies of evidence here. You've got the insider's testimony against his boss on which you can convict standing alone. And then put that aside, you have tapes on which you can convict standing alone. You put them together, it's suffocating. That's the word I use for the jury. And really, you know, what? what is insufficiently understood now, in retrospect, is Gravano was not needed at all to convict John Gotti. It was fun to put him on, made the case stronger, but he helped us dismantle the rest of the mob in New York. That was his real contribution to law enforcement. <laughs>
1: Obviously, you were not a judge in those days, and uh, you were not the person that uh, gave Sammy Gravano his prison sentence, but um, given what you just said, that this case was probably going to end up in a conviction without Gravano, and given the fact that Gravano, by his own admission, had participated in 19 murders, does it, um, is, it, is, it, is it moral, is it ethical, is it right that Sammy just essentially got two and a half years in prison for participating in 19 murders, given the fact that his testimony might not have been needed to convict John Gotti
2: in the first place. Sure, it was right. And I'm the first to admit this is a completely legit debate. You know, do we reward people who commit very serious crimes? Should we reward them at all? Do we reward them too much? That's a really interesting debate, and a lot of countries don't reward cooperation like we do. But let me tell you one thing, Frank, that is almost never on the table. You know, Gravano got five years. He admitted to 19 murders. But what's almost never on the table when this debate happens is, you know, Gravano helped us put away 47 guys. Not all of them were murderers, but most of them were. And most of them not only committed the same number of murders, you know, we didn't know for sure because they didn't flip as Gravano. But if Gravano didn't help us put those guys in prison and take them off the street, is there any doubt in my mind that many, many more murders would have happened? You know, those guys weren't going to stop killing people. So, you know, it's a cost-benefit thing. You want an insider's, you know, you want a, a front row seat to a prize fight. You got to pay for the ticket. You want a front row seat to organized crime, and you want to convict the people who are doing all the killings. You got to pay for it, and you pay for it by enlisting cooperation, making sure you do everything you can to corroborate their testimony. You know, Gravano. I spent a ton of time with him. He never stopped being my defendant. There came a point when he became my witness, too, and he helped me put a bunch of guys in who would have killed a lot more people. Do I think that was worth the uh, benefit that the judge conferred on Sammy Gravano? Absolutely. Do I respect the fact that some other people think you shouldn't do that? Yes, I do. I don't think they're right, but I I get it. Sure. Was it ethical
1: in the process of getting Sammy to flip, which i'm sure was even with his participation and willingness, even with it being his idea i'm sure it was still a tall order. but do you think it was ethical to talk with Sammy directly and bypass his attorney of record at that time?
2: <laughs> yeah, of course i do i'm the one who did it, but let me tell you what and your listeners what the what the rules are and why I thought I was not coming anywhere close to violating the rules. The sixth amendment, which gives you a right to counsel says you can't, you can't talk to people who are represented by counsel as Sammy was without the lawyer's consent. The ethical rules say, I can't talk to someone I know to be represented by counsel without the lawyer's consent. So two sources of a rule that I was facing when Garano reached out to me. The reason I thought it was a no-brainer was Sammy didn't hire his lawyer. You know, we had disqualified his lawyer, Jerry Shargall, and he was replaced by another lawyer, Ben Brofman, who wasn't hired by Sammy. He was hired by John Gotti. And Sammy told us, you know, Ben Brofman's a good lawyer. He's a friend. I like him. But he was hired by John Gotti, and Sammy believed in his heart that if I talked to Ben Brosnan about Gravano wanting to cooperate, that Gravano, that John Gotti would know and Gravano would be killed and his family would be killed. And when somebody has a lawyer who's disabled from acting in his client's best interests, which is what the situation was, I don't really care what the Sixth Amendment and the ethical rules say. That person has a right to try to do what's in his best interest. So I went to the judge privately with a tape recorder, made a record of it, said he's reached out for me. He doesn't trust his lawyer. He thinks he'll be killed. His family will be killed if I go through his lawyer. I'm not not doing it. And that's what we did. And he flipped Ben Brofman
1: is still a uh, very active criminal defense attorney, probably considered one of the three or four best criminal defense attorneys in New York. I mean, that, that's quite a thing to say that if, uh, it, you know, that he was so ethically challenged as an attorney that that would result in uh, that would result in him betraying not only uh, attorney client privilege, but uh, prosecutor defense negotiations.
2: Well, he didn't betray any privilege, but I don't blame, you know, as I say, Ben's a friend. He's, a, he's one of the top defense lawyers in the, in the country the last 25 years. But John Gotti brought out, you know, John Gotti put people in fear of him. And, you know, when I contacted Brofman and said, you're fired, Gravano has flipped, Ben Brofman did not complain to me. He did not say, how dare you go behind my, my back to my client. He said to me, John, just please make sure that everybody knows I had nothing to do with this. Because he was afraid, and I don't blame him. John Gotti made a lot of people afraid. The lawyer for Frank Locascio, years after the trial, after John Gotti died, made a filing with the court saying he was afraid to distinguish the evidence against Latasio from the evidence against John Gotti. He was afraid John Gotti would kill him. So, you know, I don't blame, I don't really blame Ben. Ben wasn't unethical. Ben was in a tough situation Mm. because John Gotti decided to hire him for Gravano, and Gravano decided he wanted to switch governments to Team America.
1: What role, if any, did the... Uh, guards at, or the uh, correction officers at the MCC play in Gravano's defection?
2: <laughs> well, George Gabriel, who was my case agent and my is my friend for life, was the F- FBI agent on the squad. He was the lead agent. I was the lead prosecutor. When Gravano flipped, he was sharing a jail cell with John Donner in the MCC in, in New York, in Manhattan. George at midnight, took a court order directing the MCC to turn Salvador Gravano over to the FBI because he was, he decided to defect. The court order had the caption of the case, which said U.S. versus John Gotti on it. So the guard downstairs at the MCC picks up the phone and calls up to the floor that Gotti and Gravano were on and says, bring down John Gotti. And uh, George, ever the alert agent, he's a fabulous FBI agent, says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't wake up John Gotti and bring him down here. <laughs> that's not going to work out well. Read the body of the order. It says, bring down Sammy the Bull. So that's what happened. And Good that he was paying attention because it would have been. It would have been quite a scene. I can imagine. God even woken up. Yeah.
1: I can imagine. So the guards weren't r- doing anything like reporting back to the U.S. Attorney's Office what was going on in the jail, were they?
2: No. No. Because they, they're, you know, they're doing their job over there. Mm. We never have any contact. I never, in my 10 years as a prosecutor, had any contact with any of the guards at the MCC.
1: What role, if any, did Gravano's wife play in the decision to defect?
2: Well, look, Sammy needed to reach out to me, and it was not like he has a phone on the wall of his cell in the NCC. So his his wife reached out to me to pass the message that uh, Gravano wanted to talk about the possibility of cooperating. Not that he wanted to cooperate; that he wanted to have a discussion. And equipped with that knowledge, we set about. We meaning me and the Gambino squad of the at the FBI set about arranging a secret meeting with Gravano in the courthouse so that we could negotiate, see whether we could strike a deal.
1: Um, how much money, if any, did Gravano actually receive from the Department of Justice from the taxpayer?
0: NYC.
2: I don't really, he maybe got some help. This is a popular misconception. You know, it's the federal government. They don't dole out a lot of money. The FBI, Sammy did not go into the Marshall's Witness Protection Program. Rather, the FBI relocated them hmm. out west. And when that happens, I mean, the guy had come out of prison after five years. They definitely um pay for the moving expenses and i'm sure there's some kind of stipend until he's on his feet but it is not the gravy train that people some people think it is it's not it's not a money maker to become a federal witness
1: Well, yeah, a lot of folks see these films like My Blue Heaven and other comedies and dramas alike. And a lot of folks do think it's sort of a lottery ticket. So I'm glad you uh, I'm glad glad you clarified that. You mentioned the deal that Gravano got and how uh, you think that was the right thing to do. But you can understand how others may may differ. William Barr, I believe, was the attorney general at the time. How high up the chain of the Justice Department did you have to go to get approval for a deal like that? Did the Attorney General himself, Bill Barr, okay and approve this deal?
2: No, I didn't even go to my boss. It was it was so secret. You know I, I didn't I wasn't sure I could strike a deal with Carvano right away. I thought there was a possibility he'd go to trial and then try to strike a deal if he got convicted. I was taking a long-term view. So I didn't tell anybody. You know, the judge encouraged me not to tell anybody. So did the FBI. There were only about four people total who knew five people, four people in the FBI wow. and me, who knew I was talking to Sammy. And, in fact, you know, one of my bosses, was, who's now my law partner here at the firm I work at, you know, was very, very upset that I hadn't gotten uh, her approval. She was the chief assistant U.S. attorney or the U.S. attorney's approval, Andy Maloney. Um, And, you know, it almost actually almost cost me my job, but it didn't. So, no, Bill Barr had nothing to do with anything. You know, this was such a secret thing because it was so explosive at the time. It was front page news when we took Garano out of the NCC. That I thought there was a need for ultra secrecy and did the deal. And I I knew the U.S. attorney was going to be delighted. Carvano took down the whole mob. So the short answer to your question is, it didn't even go one link up the chain, let alone wow. all the way to wow. the attorney general.
1: Speaking of Andy Maloney, uh, you you say a lot of nice things about him in the book, and, I, and I've read and heard you say a lot of nice things about him in the last 30 years. He was the former U.S. attorney, Eastern District. You do, uh, in the book, kind of publicly describe him as as a drunk who you had to hide information from. I mean, is that is that a little, uh, to put it charitably, disrespectful to uh, describe a former U.S. attorney as a heavy drinker that you intentionally withheld information from?
2: No, I didn't do that at all, Frank. You're not properly characterizing what's in the book. I, I trusted him completely. He did, uh, like everybody else in our office, He did socialize with prominent members of the bar. Andy, in particular, spent uh, many of his evenings with the publisher of the New York Law Journal. Everybody in New York was focused on the case. Andy was the U.S. attorney. I wouldn't have never ever said Andy was a drunk or couldn't be trusted. That's just wrong, Frank. Sorry.
1: I, no, I appreciate you clarifying that. Uh, I'm sorry if I uh, if I mischaracterized your uh, your description of the situation. Um, how do you feel about Sammy since he's been let out of prison on this uh, state case, running that ecstasy ring in Arizona? Uh, he's kind of become a youtube star he's got this big following on youtube this big podcast do you feel that he's been able to use criminality and his you know flipping on the mob to sort of become a media star
2: it is sort of an only in america story right it is indeed right um and i think it's uh, you know, obviously related to what I was mentioning earlier, which is our our fascination with um, outlaws, our fascination with La Cosa Nostra, um, the fact that here we are 30 years after that conviction, 27 years after Gravano gets sentenced, 20, 28 years, and there's still a market for, you know, a former underboss to talk about his activities within the mob. It's like, you know, it's one of these what a great country we live in, I guess, you know. Um I'm I'm kind of struck by the uh appetite for that. I I know about Sammy's podcast. Um but it's look, I'm the beneficiary of it too, right? Sure. Because I I wrote this book. People are a lot of people are buying the book, and they're enjoying the book, and it has everything to do with this kind of uh, fixation oh, we have uh, as, a, as a culture with the mob. Same here, and uh, I
1: appreciate you being so generous with your time. If you'll give me a couple more minutes, I want to uh, delve into a few more issues. Obviously, you had no way of knowing, neither did Judge Glasser, that after Sammy was essentially let off the hook for his crimes, that he would go out and commit new crimes, but... Prospectively, after that, does the fact that the government let uh, Sammy Gravano essentially slide for 19 murders and then Sammy went out and started a drug trafficking ring in Arizona after being given this incredible second chance. Does that show that these cooperating witnesses maybe shouldn't get such sweetheart deals, uh, even if it means convicting a John Gotti because of the likelihood of reoffending?
2: No, it doesn't mean that at all. You know, you stand up in front of a jury with a witness like Gravano, and the very last thing you would say, because I think you know jurors have a lot of common sense, you don't say this guy's changed his spots, he's rehabilitated. Why would you say that? Rather, it's you take the selfish motives that made him that made him like a successful criminal and you channel them in a deal that Requires him to tell the truth. And, you know, it's not like Sammy Gravano became like a rabbi or a priest or something by cooperating. He was what he was. And part of the cost benefit analysis, part of the cost is he's not going to do the time somebody who committed his crimes would do because you're going to reward his cooperation. Another part of the cost is that means he's going to be on the street sooner than he should have been given the severity of his crimes. And there's a risk he's going to reoffend. You bake all that in, you know, is that is that cost worth the benefit of taking down 47 guys, taking down the mob? And a reasonable person could say, no, it's not. I say, yes, it is. I'll I'll tell you, Frank, when Gravano got rearrested, he he wasn't running the ecstasy ring. His kid got involved in it. And as, you know, like fathers do, he helped the kid and he committed a serious crime. But I'll confess to you, was I relieved when Gravano got arrested? It wasn't for a violent crime. You bet I was. You know, I knew that we had created the risk that someone who had committed all those murders would be back out there. Was I when I heard that Gravano got arrested? Was I on, you know, you know, on pins and needles? when i before i found out what he got arrested for you bet i was but that's you know that's that's it's a it's a adult game you want people with good judgment making these deals because those are the risks you take you don't turn these people into something other than what they were you you make a bargain to get the benefit of their testimony uh, you,
1: there's uh, Most people believe that part of the reason you were able to get a federal judgeship at such a young age is because of the success that you had as a prosecutor with such high-profile mafia prosecutions. Someone else that was able to uh, ride the wave of several high-profile prosecutions, including a mafia prosecution, uh, was Rudy Giuliani. He used those prosecutions to brandish his reputation and become mayor of New York City, and obviously the rest is history. Uh, Rudy's a, a colleague of mine on uh, WABC, and uh, I would go so far as to call him a friend Rudy has, um, he's suffered some blows to his reputation in the last couple of years. What's your view? Obviously, I know he was Southern District and you worked in the Eastern District. What was your view of Rudy as a prosecutor, putting aside him as a politician, as a mayor, as a mayor, as a presidential candidate, as an advisor to Donald Trump? What did you think of Rudy as a prosecutor?
2: Well, I was just watching from across the river like any other young lawyer at the time. He was... U.S. attorney in Southern District, by the time he was like 40, they had they did official corruption cases. They did the stand the um, commission case. The Southern District back then was in its heyday. It's always been kind of the flagship office. And, you know, Rudy, obviously, I, I think it was maybe this is just hindsight. In retrospect, it looked it looks like. He was interested in public office and the like um, because he, he was a high-profile prosecutor in terms of press conferences and the like. But, um, look, you know, I applied to that office, interviewed with Rudy. He decided not to hire me, so I hightailed it over to Brooklyn, and we did our stuff in Brooklyn. Uh, You don't exactly give a ringing
1: endorsement to Bruce Cutler as a trial attorney. What's your view of Bruce Cutler as an attorney, uh, both then and now?
2: Look, I've lost touch with Bruce. Um, Back then, I, I, I always had a soft spot for Bruce because when he was not in John Gotti's orbit, I got along great with him. I tried another I've tried Mike Coiro, who was the Gotti Cruz lawyer before Bruce was, and Bruce defended Mike, got along with him great. Um I think John Gotti brought out the worst in everybody who got close to him, and that was true more so with Bruce than anybody else. Yeah, Bruce takes it on the chin in my book because he behaved badly. But he behaved badly because You know, we talked earlier about Ben Brofman maybe being a little afraid of John Gotti. Bruce Cutler was a ton afraid of John Gotti, and it affected his behavior professionally. Once he was out of that and, you know, in defending other people, I had other cases with Bruce. I got along great with him. He's a funny guy. He's a uh, a guy you can laugh with. But uh, once he was, you know, in those cases, he did not. He behaved the way John Gotti wanted them to, and it wasn't well. You mentioned
1: Gerald Chargell, another Gotti defense attorney who's represented a lot of people over the years. Uh, we just lost Gerald Chargell recently. What do you think of Gerald Chargell as an attorney?
2: The best of his generation. A truly great trial lawyer. Um, obviously, he and I kind of came from a legal perspective. Jerry and I came to personify the opposite sides of of this organized crime context, which was the main focus of law enforcement at the time. We butted heads, but unlike with Bruce, I stayed in close touch with Jerry over the years. We would guest teach in each other's classes. He and I and our wives became actually close friends. And uh, as you mentioned We lost Jerry uh, less than two weeks ago. I miss him already. He was uh, a very good friend and a truly great, Defense lawyer.
1: Final question. And I appreciate you having been so generous with your time. And I do hope we could do a part two because I have pages of legal questions that uh, that I do want to ask you based on stuff that's in the book and stuff that I'm curious about. But of all the motion pictures that you've seen over the years depicting mob life or or depicting John Gotti, and he's been depicted in a number of films, as has the prosecution of John Gotti. What would you say is the most realistic film about the mafia or about the prosecution of a mobster? It could be an entirely fictional story like The Godfather, or it could be something based on reality like the films based on uh, the Gotti trials.
2: The only one that is kind of has any verisimilitude to it that is realistic, but it's very realistic, is Goodfellas. You know, the all the, the Jimmy Burke, who's played by Robert De Niro, the, uh, they, they, the name is a different name in the movie, but Robert De Niro plays the character of Jimmy Burke, who masterminded the Lufthansa robbery, and, you know, the Joe Pesci, person is based on Tommy De Simone, and it, the, that as you, and as you know that movie doesn't depict wise guys as like honorable folks it sure. depicts them as kind of demented violent people so it's not perfect but it's the only piece of wise guy art that comes anywhere close to it accurately imitating life. Judge,
1: it has been a real treat talking with you. I can't recommend the book, The Gotti Wars, enough. Uh, People should check it out. The Gotti Wars, taking down America's most notorious mobster. I would love to do a part two at your convenience. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on your show, Frank. Thank you. That is Judge John Gleason, currently a partner at one of the most distinguished law firms in America. And he's led a distinguished career as a prosecutor, a federal judge, uh, a defense attorney, and been responsible for some of the highest profile mafia prosecutions in history. Thank you for listening. Uh, Do us a solid and share this podcast. Please subscribe to it if you haven't already. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.